the mandated public cultures of the second half of the 20th century under the apartheid system were a sort of process of neo-tribalization. But here we've got a dynamic in which a fluid, abstract form like jazz dance becomes a vehicle for referencing forms of indigenous dance that would be immediately recognizable to people from those backgrounds in urban settings, like Safayatown or Marabastat. But it's not reducible to any one kind of ethnic identifier. But fantastically, it provides a space in which people can simultaneously be reaching beyond their horizons, but also tapping into roots that were compromised by apartheid appropriations, but in a sense, I think, are being reclaimed in this practice. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Prof. Krista Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witz School of Arts. In this podcast, I'll be talking to Brett Piper, an Associate Professor in the Witz School of Arts. Brett has been heading up a major interdisciplinary project based on popular manifestations of jazz culture in South Africa. Currently called the Cosmopolitan Collective, the project has evolved over the last 17 years from an initial study, Township Jazz Appreciation Societies and Urban Carp Tank, through a creative engagement with jazz cosmopolitanism in Accra, in Ghana, to become a multifaceted research project that is using a range of creative methodologies to explore and expand the status of jazz as heritage. South African-born Brett is a cultural practitioner, arts administrator, festival director, music researcher, and academic. He began his career as a facilitator of developmental music projects during the transition from apartheid, before taking up a Fulbright scholarship to study in the US, where he was based for six years. He holds a master's degree in public culture from Emory University in Atlanta, and a PhD in ethnomusicology and popular music studies from New York University. Between 2005 and 2007, he headed the Division of Heritage Studies and Cultural Management in the Witt School of Arts. From 2008 to 2013, he was CEO of the Klein Kurua National Arts Festival, one of South Africa's major festivals of art, popular and vernacular culture, which takes place annually at Easter time in the town of Otsuan in the rural Western Cape. He returned to academia and Witt in 2014 to take up the headship of the School of Arts which he led until 2021. In this discussion, we cover the influence of Prof. Stephen Feld's Jazz Cosmopolitanism Project in Accra and the ways in which the South African project was a response to Feld's work with Ghanaian musicians. We look at the impact of the COVID-19 restrictions, which scuppered the planned collaboration between Accra and Johannesburg, and the reasons for the choice of cosmologies as the working title for the South African project. We examine the ways that the project managed the COVID restrictions for their groundbreaking 2020 live concert at WITS, involving creative contributions from staff and students together with South African jazz musicians. We discuss the contribution made to the concept by the local digger, dance improvisers, and the significance of such embodied responses for the post-apartheid cultural project in South Africa. We then unpack the surprising motivation for renaming the project as the Cosmopolitan Collective, 
and look more closely at the four distinct streams of practice that have come to be featured in the research collaboration of the collective. Brett, welcome. It's been quite a while getting the two of us down on either side of a microphone, but now's the opportunity. And I've really been wanting to speak to you about the Cosmopolitanisms project and generally what it means for ways of working, musicking, researching, collaborating, and perhaps most challenging of all, what this notion means for our understanding of jazz in relation to Africa, the USA, the Caribbean. And maybe I should kick off with talking about Stephen Feld's work. And it's really Stephen, the musicologist and anthropologist and jazz musician, who has put the notion of jazz cosmopolitanism on the map. And I'm referring particularly to his remarkable book, Jazz Cosmopolitanism in Africa, which came out 2012 and documents his engagement as an American musician, anthropologist with the jazz scene in Accra. And he describes in a very sort of free, creative way of, of writing anthropology, he describes his engagements and his learnings from four different musicians in Accra. And one of them is this remarkable figure, Ganaba, or previously known as Guy Warren, the drummer and percussionist who worked very closely with the key figures in bebop, American bebop in the 1950s, and then returned to Ghana to become a leading musical experimentalist in the city. And he also describes his engagement with the sort of Harry Parch type figure, Ninoy Norti, who's a saxophonist in the Coltrane tradition, but who's also a sculptor and a, an instrument maker. <laughs> and then there's his engagement with the percussionist, the African percussionist, that's Ni Utu Anan, an very, very African, very traditional percussionist who turns out to have been profoundly inspired by Elvin Jones and Rashid Ali, Coltrane's great drummers. And finally, that uh, collective of truck and minibus taxi drivers who create music using their squeeze horn hooters at the funerals of taxi drivers. And what Stephen does is make incredibly, I think, fruitful connections between the sort of music, the sort of activities that are going on in Accra and a much wider understanding of jazz. And he makes extremely strong links with the Caribbean and the diaspora, the musical diaspora that is manifested in Caribbean music, of course, to the American jazz tradition. But underlying all of that is a very strong critique of the American hegemonic jazz history in which jazz is something that happens in America. It's the tradition of jazz is entirely American. And it's allowed that there are these other parts of the world where jazz music has traveled. But the sense that jazz 
has taken different roots and has drawn off very, very different indigenous musical traditions isn't something that's widely recognized. I think that view, that hegemonic view of American jazz is epitomized by the very influential Ken Burns television series which in many ways just restates Winton Marsalis's view of America as the place where jazz developed and, and jazz has its history and roots. So we could start by talking about how your project engaged with, with Stephen Feld's notion of jazz cosmopolitanism and how it went from there. Thanks so much, Christo. It's great to be speaking about this work. And absolutely, that's a great place to start because it's, I suppose, the unexpected optic, or if you like, the, rather the oral perspective on the music that Stephen Feld's work really stimulated for me. I had the privilege of studying with Professor Feld towards the end of his time at NYU in the early 2000s. And he's always remained a very active and generous teacher and mentor of sorts. And so I was fascinated to hear from him for the first time, actually, verbally, that he'd started very much to his own surprise working in Ghana and how he had come across these remarkable musicians you've referred to. And perhaps I should say something about, you know, just quite how off the radar those musicians are, even within the context of, of Accra. And so when you refer to the jazz scene in Accra, um, often these would be underground kinds of artists and practices operating in venues that one is very unlikely to see if you were staying in a hotel in Accra and asked someone to take you to a jazz venue on a given evening. And so the book Jazz Cosmopolitanism in Accra, which came out exactly a decade ago in 2012, charts a unexpected but ultimately really fascinating and revealing perspective, not only on, on music in and of that place, but specifically the ways in which this music reaches beyond place. In fact, there's a really great quote that Ninoy Norte makes in one of the videos that doesn't quite accompany the book. In fact, the whole project started from a series of albums and films and then the book came later, which I think is also important for us, recognizing how practice was really at the center of this whole project for Stephen Feld. Ninoy describes the ways in which cosmopolitanism is really about reaching beyond one's own little horizon. And fascinating to think of the ways in which these musics that have circulated in commodified forms as vinyl recordings as broadcasts sort of in the ether and sometimes through the movements of live musicians like Guy Warren, later Ghanaba, between West Africa and the US and back. Sometimes they come to view within the mainstream histories of jazz, but sometimes they completely slip out of the narrative. And I think that's where you've been quite pertinently putting your finger on the significance of this book. And so, of course, it raises the possibility of talking about jazz cosmopolitanism, not only in Accra, but in a, any range of places across the African continent and, of course, beyond as well. And given the richness of our jazz cultures in Southern Africa, it immediately felt as if, you know, this book and the practice-based work that accompanies it was a sort of call to which 
we should be trying to respond. And I visited Steve in Santa Fe late in 2018. I'd been at a conference in the next town over. And he basically put a request to me when I told him about the work we were doing in ARA. And he said, you know, his interlocutors and co-creators in Accra are so hungry to connect with like-minded practitioners elsewhere in Africa. Could I in any sense help to make those kinds of connections? And so immediately I thought, wow, it would be really special to be able to introduce people like Ninoy, Ni Otu, Ganaba is, of course, late, unfortunately, but especially the circle that gathered around Ninoy's really remarkable community-based work in his home in the outlying village or, or district of Accra called Anya. If we could maybe put those musicians in touch with people from South Africa who would get what they're doing artistically, socially, politically, and so on. And it was really thanks to the chance to apply for an ARA residency that would be pertinently interdisciplinary that we started working towards a residency that, of course, was fatefully planned for the third week of March 2020. Yeah. Just when the lockdown gates closed. In fact, Steve was already in Accra rehearsing with the musicians who would be coming over. And one member of the group, who's an amazing mural and graffiti artist who works with the collective, Nico Wayo, he was actually with us in Joburg already to start working. And I should also then say that really crucial to this form of jazz cosmopolitanism is recognizing that it's not only about the music, that there are visual registers associated with it, sartorial registers, and multiple dimensions of the ways in which jazz has, in a sense, reached across the horizons between art forms as well, especially in its social life in Africa. That was at the heart of what we wanted to explore together. And you had already been working in your PhD research with communities of jazz listeners, jazz appreciators. How did you marry that work, that engagement, with the Jazz Cosmopolitanism project? So that was the great opportunity that the planned residency would afford us, and that would be not only to introduce the Ghanaian musicians to South African jazz musicians, and of course we spoiled for choice in terms of uh, who might be uh, possible collaborators for them. But at the start of 2019, I took up an invitation from Steve Feld to join him in Accra when he was planning to be there and to go off to Anya to meet Ninoy at his home, which is a really remarkable space. It's a performance space. It's a living gallery. It's a shrine to Coltrane and various Afrocentric expressive uh, practices. And it was getting a sense of how seriously off the jazz map Ninoy's work was that I felt that a lot of my own PhD research, which has precisely, you know, focused on the -the off-the-map aspects of South African jazz culture, and especially, of course, the rich social life of this music that so-called jazz stockfells or jazz appreciation societies have created, um, I thought that would actually be a really fascinating additional level to the collaboration, is recognizing not only 
the musical and even the interdisciplinary visual or photographic or filmic life of the music. But the public cultures that jazz is associated with and sometimes actually calls into being. If we think about the history of jazz, not only as a history of musical practices and other aesthetic forms, but as a history of the kinds of social spaces that in the U.S. would have been associated with the speakeasies of the rural South, and then, of course, particular areas of New Orleans, famously Storyville, but really importantly, also the Black Church. And then the way that the American narrative unfolds and jazz emerges in sites like, you know, the south side of Chicago and Harlem, and then crosses over at some point into mainstream spaces. There's a South African equivalent to that too. You know, a century ago, there were musicians in Dwerenfontein, which at that time was known as a slum yard. It's associated with the emergence of Marabi. The history of Sophia Town, you know, is famously coded with jazz. And then, of course, after the forced removal of these sites of what I call jazz sociability, the music moved underground, so to speak, or into a kind of what I call a semi-public cultural space, which was held in people's homes, in their yards, in local taverns, sometimes in community halls, by the Jazz Appreciation Societies. And I had, in my early career organizing concerts in Pretoria, met a group from Attridgeville who wanted to come to my concerts and negotiated block bookings for their members. And so I was aware that this was an aspect of the culture around what is now known as the city of Tswane. So when I came back from New York, actually, to look at how jazz was unfolding in the post-apartheid period, I was interested to see whether those circles were around. And I stumbled upon, once I started looking, an extraordinary efflorescence, if you like, of jazz appreciation societies in the early to mid-90s, expanding their networks, coming into a sort of semi-public space, but somehow also being surprisingly unconnected to the development of the new uh, cultural precincts, the big jazz festivals, the international festivals that started in South Africa since the mid-90s. And eventually my PhD became a study of what we might learn about public culture in the post-apartheid period through listening to the practices of jazz appreciators. And so the attention was then to embed the collaboration with the jazz cosmopolitans from Accra in, at least in part, the kind of jazz cultures created by our own particular jazz cosmopolitans in our jazz appreciation societies. As I understand it, the changed relationship or the relationship led to a changed understanding of the South African project. And out of that came the name Cosmologies as a description of what the South Africans were doing in relation to the notion of cosmopolitanism. Can you expand on that and the reason for introducing this new term for the South African activities? Sure. So at the start of 2020, in the months that we were preparing to receive Steve and other musicians from Accra, we were focusing very much on reading his book, on listening to the recordings, on viewing the films, and on basically preparing to be able to host a physical residency over the course of about two weeks 
in and around Joburg and Pretoria or Tswane. Of course, when COVID happened, initially we had to postpone. We had already booked flights for the musicians who hadn't made it over yet. And of course, as the initial three weeks of the hard lockdown became five weeks, became more months, we realized that we were going to have to reconceptualize this residency. And the unexpected gift of COVID along all the disruption and, of course, the real tragedy in our circles was to have more time then to think about rather than having to compress our interactions with with our interlocutors from Accra and beyond, rather than compressing that into two weeks in a physical residency, what would it be like for us to respond to their recordings and films and writings and to, in a sense, write back and play back to the materials that they sent? And eventually, as you know, we were able to, at the point at which some on-campus activity became possible later in 2020, even though we couldn't have live audiences, live public uh, presentations. We decided that we would put on the kind of concert that we would have liked to welcome the visiting musicians with that was intended to showcase jazz cosmopolitanism from Joburg and beyond, and then to record that. Actually, we live-streamed it, and the idea was to pursue this deferred residency in the digital domain. And over the months that we were preparing the concert, we had various working groups preparing for the project. And the project eventually developed four legs or pillars. The first, of course, was one that one could describe pretty much as a study group. We had people reading Feld's work about jazz cosmopolitanism, thinking about that in relation to the existing literature on South African jazz and so on. And so we had a group and each of these groups was organized around a verb. We had a theorizing group that basically was engaging the scholarship around this notion of jazz cosmopolitanism in and across Africa. We, of course, had a group of musicians who were listening to the recordings and preparing a performance that was intended to introduce what we do so that a musical collaboration could ensue. And our colleagues from the music department in the School of Arts at Witz, Chantal Willie-Peterson and Andre Peterson, who, of course, we tragically lost to COVID during the course of 2021. But they listened to the materials, and I almost pertinently didn't want their perspective into the project to be framed too much by the reading and write, what the reading and writing group was doing. So in parallel to the theorizing group, we had what we called the musicking group, borrowing Christopher Small's turning into a verb of the notion of music, which for Small very notably includes not only practical musicianship, but listening, or all aspects of oral culture. This is particularly pertinent given the DJ practices and the dance or diga practices which go with the music in the jazz appreciation scene. So we had a musicking group, and they were focusing on preparing a concert. Finally, at that point, we had an organizing group. And this was out of recognition that the ways in which jazz appreciation societies organize their sessions 
on aspects of the culture in and of itself. The ways, for example, in which a mutual aid, you know, rotating credit structure is set up with people paying monthly contributions called Mahodisano, the way in which these clubs sometimes double as burial societies. There's a whole social structure to these jazz appreciation societies. And I'd for a long time been concerned about their exclusion from most of the public culture around jazz that has happened in mainstream venues in South Africa, you know, over the last two to three decades. And at the initiative of one of our postgraduate students in the school at that point, who was himself from West Africa, from Lagos, actually, Oladele Ayorinde, we had a festival study group that itself organized itself in the school. And they became the group that started organizing the concert that was going to take place at the Witz Theater. And the intent was to take up the challenge of trying to find another model for a jazz festival. And so that third leg of the project became a working group that met not only to plan the logistics, but to think about how one might frame and brand and publicize this concert. And so at one of these meetings, we acknowledged that the notion of, you know, billing a concert as a platform for jazz cosmopolitanism sounded really bookish, really academic, and possibly alienating if we wanted to reach a wider audience. And so there was a brainstorm discussion going on as to how one might communicate the intent for the concert, but have something more user-friendly at one level. And one of the members of the group, Simpiwa Mtembu, said, what about cosmology? Now, cosmology turned out to be a really multivalent signifier for the project because it happens to tap into quite a rich history within jazz of experimental musicians using the ology suffix. And, you know, this goes back to Charlie Parker's ornithology, a kind of signifying on his own name as an artist. Within South Africa, the late Zimrawana, of course, had a whole album and it became a mantra of his practice, calling his work Zimology. And so uh, it was great that it had a local jazz referent. But beyond that, the more we had actually listened to the music and reflected on what aspects of Coltrane's legacy the musicians in Accra had picked up on, we had been really interested in the ways in which there were whole ways of seeing the world and the universe often linked to African and African-American spiritual practices. And of course, a much wider sense then of the significance of music um, and something that also plugged into, you know, Sun Ra's kind of register of jazz being a space of actually, you know, exceeding the bounds of the earth. So again, this idea of reaching beyond one's own little horizon, becoming in fact an even larger than planetary perspective. So cosmology became the brand under which we build the concert. And then you had a fourth stream of practice, which was focused on teaching and experimental pedagogies. How did that elaborate and fit into the three aspects of practice that you just described? So, of course, we were focusing very much on those three, and there was already quite a lot to coordinate between them. But when the concert actually happened at the Witz Theatre on a Friday evening at the end of October 2020, 
And all these elements came together for the first time. It was quite an extraordinary evening. And so let me describe it to you in a bit more detail. So what we'd planned eventually was, and uh, also need to draw out the really lovely interdisciplinary collaborations here within the School of Arts. So Andre and Chantal, with several highly experienced professional jazz musicians who were involved as guests, Professor Salim Washington from UKZN, who of course is from Brooklyn in the States, and also Prince Lengwasa, who, although he's also a registered postgraduate student in our school at many points in his career, is a heritage practitioner in his own right as a jazz musician. The idea was to create a platform for several students who I was working with on their postgraduate studies to actually work with one another creatively and to be advancing notions of practice-based or artistic research. And Andre and Chantal, given their roles in stewarding important parts of the jazz program in the music department at WITS, brought in some students as well, in particular, a really amazing octet of voices. And so we had a large ensemble. We had upwards of of 17 musicians on stage, which involved musicians in various degrees of their training trajectories. And their engagement with the repertoire that we'd received from the Accra recordings was something that's worth describing as well. When we sat down to listen to the recordings, there was a lot of music. You know, Steve has been working with musicians in Accra for a long time. But the place from which they started discovering a shared fascination and love for the music of Coltrane became a really generative point of initial contact. And so the decision from the South African musicians was to say, well, let's start from our own response to what we would pick up in the Coltrane tradition. And of course, we know that really famous South African musicians from the late Winston Mankunku Ngozi to Begim Seleku and many other subsequent musicians were responding to Coltrane's music within South Africa at the time, and that it remains a really important point of reference for contemporary musicians. And so we started planning a Coltranian response to the early Coltranian recordings of the Anya Arts Collective from Accra. And within that, there were repertoire choices to be made, there were angles onto the music. Chantal, being a scholar herself of women's contributions to jazz, which often are also under the radar of the normative mainstream jazz narratives, she was very keen to bring in the influence of Alice Coltrane and others. So the repertoire became a very rich response to the recordings that came to us. And there was a lot of pedagogical engagement around that within the musicking team. Secondly, apart from having this amazing group of musicians on stage, we had a really rich presence of voices within that ensemble. And at the time, I was working with the now Dr. Homozo Moshuchi, who was, I was aware, not only writing the first social history of a cappella close harmony music in the Seventh-day Adventist church, but is a, a remarkable musical arranger. And I introduced him to Chantal and they started working together. And so drawing out the vocal strength of South African jazz repertoires in relation to the purely instrumental material that came to us from Accra was an interesting 
aspect to the response. So Homozo did some arrangements of Coltrane standards and other music that he chose that in some ways was part of this idea of us responding to a call that came from West Africa musically. And so there was a pedagogical dimension to that as well in how one teaches that particular strand of close harmony performance for live presentation. And then in the mix of all of this, we decided that it would be safe to invite a guest audience. We wouldn't publicize the concert for the general jazz public in Joburg. And I had the chance to do something that I had never had the chance to do before, and that was to focus on and to prioritize the jazz appreciators, mostly from Amalodi, east of Tswane, with whom I've worked now for upwards of 17 years in the course of my own research. And I felt it would be actually just a really nice gesture to invite them into the space and to be a live audience and to be able to experience some of what we'd been planning for earlier in the year that had been deferred because of COVID. The theater staff worked with us. We socially distanced. We were masked. We were sanitized. We spread out in the theater. And it, it was all pretty special having them in the audience already. But I had known, of course, that there was a potential, although never a guarantee, that if the music was right and the spirit was right, that this extraordinary practice of solo improvised dance called diga in the culture might elicit some people onto the stage. It's an entirely improvised practice, and I didn't want to try to choreograph it or to try to manage it. But I did warn the musicians that if someone wanted to dance, it might happen. And of course, what happened at the event was that almost from the very outset, members of the audience started coming up onto the stage and responding in a sartorial and in an embodied way to what the musicians were doing. And most of the musicians had never experienced this kind of thing before. I had some really seasoned jazz journalists and critics and professionals in the auditorium who hadn't seen this before. But this particular dynamic of the presence of moving bodies, one at a time, in a sense, offering something of an embodied solo to parallel what the instrumental soloists were doing, just completely blew open the discussion to the point that Andre said to me that the next morning, for him, this challenged the way we should be teaching jazz. And I suppose at the heart of that was a recognition that there are these worlds of practice, literally, you know, a stone's throw away, but often underneath the radar of the formal curriculum as much as the mainstream jazz venues. The digger dancing, the embodied improvisation to the music, which is so fundamental to that musical culture, that musical appreciation culture that it comes from. Can you talk more about it? Because it's really striking. Wherever there have been events in which diggers perform and enjoy themselves, and it just seems so rich. There's the, you mentioned the sartorial references, and most of it seems to me to directly reference sort of 50s urban culture, you know, the strong echoes of the way that the Jürgen Schaderberg documentation of Sophiatown and the nightlife in Sophiatown, that's the sartorial style that one sees continued in the Degas. But very striking to me are the movements, the very stylized movements and the repertoire 
of gestures that the decadences draw on. And there's a sense there that they are bringing in African dance forms and gestures into the physical appreciation of the jazz music. Can you talk more about the diggers? Absolutely. So firstly, I agree with you that the stylistic reference uh, in terms of how people dress and their sartorial uh, style is definitely towards the sort of canonized jazz look of the mid-20th century, which was, of course, hugely fueled by Hollywood film, album covers from New York, and of course, the ways in which that look was appropriated by a range of of, of role players in Southern Africa, from the musicians themselves to the infamous gangsters of places like Sapphire Town and so on. And of course, the then Pretoria had its own equivalent. So people would point out that Marabastat in the center of Pretoria was very much Pretoria's equivalent to Sapphire Town. And probably most cities around South Africa would have their own localized version of this. Definitely there's a sense that the Diga culture holds the presentation of self and style of that that mid-20th century jazz look. And it probably, you know, draws on the kinds of imagery that would have come through in jazz films as well, tap dancing and, you know, sequences that that would look familiar to people in the US and, and, and probably around the world. But then there's this hybridization or syncretization that takes place. And the practice also simultaneously seems to reference a range of, 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 of indigenous dance references. And I think this is quite poignant and significant because, of course, we know that the second half of the 20th century, in many ways, is a period in which the apartheid state appropriated ethnicity. And the idea that People had to be classified according to ethnic groups mapped onto homelands and that the mandated public cultures of the second half of the 20th century under the apartheid system were a sort of process of neo-tribalization. Here we've got a dynamic in which a fluid abstract form like jazz dance becomes a vehicle for referencing forms of indigenous dance, such as the kind of Kiba performances that Bapedi associate with, with the Dinakad form of panpipe playing. And, you know, there's a whole register there that would be immediately recognizable to people from those backgrounds in urban settings, like Sophia Town or Marabastat. But it's not reducible to any one kind of ethnic identifier. When I showed a film of the Cosmology Concert to members of the Cosmopolitan Collective, and we'll still explain how that collective emerged after the concert. But we looked at this footage, and as we were looking at one of the dancers performing, someone turned to me from our Mamalodi colleagues and said, that movement directly references, you know, particular kinds of moves associated with particular communities. And so this is legible to people. But fantastically, and this starts to help us to unpack the particular significance of South African jazz cosmopolitanism, and that is that it provides a space in which people can simultaneously be reaching beyond their horizons, 
but also tapping into roots that were compromised by apartheid appropriations, but in a sense, I think are being reclaimed in this practice. One of your collaborators was the South African dancer and choreographer, Tabarapur. What was his engagement with Diga as a dance form? So Tabo is the absolute perfect collaborator to have on this project because firstly, Tabo is from Greater Tswane. He grew up to the west of Pretoria. He himself recalls as a young person stumbling upon a jazz appreciation session while he was looking for a church gathering on a given Sunday and how he himself has been embedded in the culture. We know him as a former Standard Bank Young Artist Award winner for dance. And he's, of course, a a very accomplished dancer choreographer who came through the moving into dance Mopatong stable. And Tabo has an interest as a teacher and as a practitioner in Diga. And so I invited Tabo to join uh, our circle. But Tabo was on stage, and here I have to say I was really pleased that this worked out. I had recommended, knowing that Tabo is a musician as well and plays percussion, I'd suggested that he be included in the Cosmology Ensemble. There is a famous quote by now from the musicians in dialogue with one another in preparing for the Cosmology concert. And Salim Washington said to us afterwards that he'd had reason to turn to Andre and say he's seeing the conga player, but he's not really hearing the conga player much. Uh, And that's because Tabo was really playing a low profile and playing an accompanying role in most of the rehearsals and a fair amount of the performance, but towards the end of the Cosmology concert. And this is typical at jazz appreciation sessions. The flow of the music played by the DJs at jazz sessions It ebbs and flows with the ways that an evening, you know, unfolds. But there are moments at which diggers start kind of spurring each other on and the energy rises. And Tabor knew when to tap into that moment when the Diga dancers were with us in the Witz Theatre for the Cosmology concert. And so there was an entirely unscripted break in the program where Tabo made eye contact with the Digas and started improvising on the conga drums and literally called out the Digas in the room who hadn't yet come to do their stuff on the stage. And it was an electrifying moment, musically and otherwise. And it was, again, just a signal of how rich this culture is, but how hard it is to pin it down and to to program it in a repertoire list or indeed to try to, you know, plan in advance for what might happen. It is a really lovely moment that we were able to capture on film in which Tabo's knowledge of the practice of Diga completely took over his musicianship. And it's precisely that kind of complete unity between musicking and dancing that we hoped would come through. I was watching that concert on a live stream in the middle of a forest on the Pumalanga escarpment, you know, with a line of sight connection to a quite distant internet point. And I was watching it in bursts as I had connectivity. But this development, this unanticipated development was apparent even in what I was able to watch from out in Pumalanga when, as you say, Tabu called out 
the diggers to engage and to improvise. So it was, yeah, a really remarkable moment. And Brett, can you talk about how post the concert, the Cosmopolitan Collective emerged and how that is going forward and the, the kind of goals and objectives that that collective has set for itself? Absolutely. So let me just quickly say that before I step off from the cosmology concert, the fact that you were able to follow that concert uh, live was thanks to our colleague Moke Janse van Feeren and students in film and TV who were studying filming live performance. And so we had that additional pedagogical presence, which was really lovely. And there were also, of course, photographers working in the auditorium, taking beautiful photographs, including Manyatsa Monyamane, who was at the time a fine arts master student and her partner Temba Vilakazi. And these are all examples of the kinds of collaborations that just came together in that evening. So to answer your question about what happened next, our guests from Mamelodi were as blown away by the concert as we were. And we gathered a week afterwards at the home of who in many ways has been my teacher and mentor in the jazz appreciation scene, Brabiza Botelezi, who's a veteran jazz DJ and organizer from Mamelodi. And they basically said to us that this can't be the end of the process. And of course, going back to October 2020, I think we should recognize that jazz appreciators who'd probably spent most of their lives attending jazz sessions relatively regularly, whether weekly or monthly, were in the midst of something that hadn't even happened under the states of emergency in the 1980s. And that was a blanket prohibition of public gatherings, even for music. And this concert that we were able to invite them to and that they ended up participating in became a light bulb moment for them of firstly being able to take on board socially distanced practices for safer live events. But they saw how their practice could interact with live musicians as well as being part of a DJ culture in most of the sessions held in their sphere. And so they said to us, they actually wanted to form a new structure that would take forward this initiative so that they could continue to collaborate with us, but not only with us as VITS, but there were role players within Greater Tswane who had come together in the audience that evening and saw the opportunities for collaboration at a new level. It's not always the case that, for example, live musicians and jazz appreciation DJs work together, or even that the diggers who attend sessions become co-organizers of structures. In many ways, they are the social butterflies who get attracted to flit from session to session and bring their magic but their practice was in crisis and here was an opportunity to work together collaboratively to take it forward in a new context. And so as we brainstormed what the structure would be called in a beautiful inversion of the discussion of our festival study group who felt that the term cosmopolitanism was too academic, our non-academic partners 
had picked up entirely what the concert was about and what its significance was and said, you know, let's call this the Cosmopolitan Collective. And so the Cosmopolitan Collective has become a really unanticipated at some level and experimental and ongoing collaboration that has extended up until the present. We recently presented our 10th public event and we've continued to present concerts in community halls around Greater Tswane where they would be accessible to members of the community who don't usually get to mainstream venues in the cities. But we've also done quite high-profile concerts on campuses, both at WITS and at UJ recently in collaboration with uh, the UJ Arts Centre and also the Centre for the Creative Arts at UKZN, who's taken an interest in helping us with the digital footprint of this kind of work. And so it's basically a whole new phase of public humanities work has flourished in which we've been taking on the challenge of trying to build an inclusive public sphere in which township-based jazz audiences and DJs and, of course, the wonderful diggers have greater access to the kinds of resources and spaces where jazz is typically presented in cities. And so the plan is to continue that. We've been supported amazingly through the Arts Research Africa project in the School of Arts. After the initial cosmology concert, the residency budget was, of course, expended. But I was really pleased that that evening, the head of the Cultural Policy and Management Department in the School of Arts, our colleague Munyaradzi Chatikorbo, was with us. And he immediately saw connections with his own research interests in cultural informality and the ways in which he sees this kind of work having policy and management implications. And so he invited the Cosmopolitan Collective to be artists in residence in their department this year. And in the context of that residency, we've presented a lot of work. And in recent months, we also received recognition from music industry bodies like the Music in Africa Foundation and also Concerts SA, who over the course of this year have sponsored aspects of the public work that we do. And so... Although I have to say it's been quite logistically challenging to integrate all that activity into our work. And I think I've got to recognize that at some levels we've been challenging the university to accommodate kinds of work that our systems aren't set, set up to do. It's created an extraordinary body of work already of filmed performances, new music, collaborations and teaching. And from this point... What possibilities to go back to the ideas of before the COVID lockdown, of that collaboration with Accra? Well, I'm delighted that you're asking the question because there's another unanticipated opportunity. So I'm a member of the International Council for Traditional Music, which is the largest global network for music research, basically affiliated with UNESCO. And those conferences move around the world. And that conference happens to be going to Accra next July. And so we just a couple of days ago were desperately working to meet the deadline to submit proposals for that conference because it offers the ideal opportunity, of course, to try to take some of our jazz cosmopolitans from Joburg and, and Mamelodi to Accra to visit Ninoy and our other colleagues there and in the context, hopefully, also to showcase our work with a global community of music researchers. So I've set myself quite an ambitious fundraising target 
to be able to raise some funds for next year. But the, the opportunity to go to Accra is too good to pass up. And so, you know, watch this space. We are hoping that we'll finally be able to be in the same space to make music together and to reflect on all these dimensions of the project. It's theoretical implications, it's musical and it's danced implications, the ways in which organizing around jazz has shaped public cultures in all kinds of places, including Accra. And, and, and of course, as we've done more and more of this, we've got more teaching material that's emerged from it as well. An extraordinarily rich project that I really have to compliment you and your collaborators in taking it forward. Because in many ways, I think this has been the central research project that has emerged out of the ARA funding. <laughs> and as you know, the funding was used rather differently. The Mellon funding was used rather differently. Yet it has given birth to what I think is, is an extraordinarily rich research project that has gone beyond the walls of the university and the purely academic and has actively engaged and I think stimulated aspects of popular culture and community, community work. So it really is a model of what I think a project can be in an art school. So I really... Great compliment to you, Brett, and to the whole Cosmopolitan team. And thank you for making the time. Thanks so much for that, Christo. Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, one thing I would add, and it, I'm also just delighted that, you know, the research I've been doing for years has taken on this additional life. I think what's been a really special aspect to close on this is that a, a really amazing intergenerational dialogue has emerged within the Mamalodi jazz community and then between it and our students who've often found elders in their own families, you know, to be parts of these scenes. And I think it's brought together all those different strands into a single project. So I'm really happy that we've got an ongoing project that merges practice or arts making and teaching and community engagement in a very integral way. And it's very much a collective process and achievement. And I'm really, really happy that there are now role players in Mamalodi who are initiating research, who are sometimes helping with teaching our students in, in excursions or other ways. And we'll see where they take us and what we'll learn together next. Wish you lots of luck and really hope that the trip to Accra happens next year and that you document it extensively because I would be astonished to see the engagements between the South Africans and those characters that Stephen Felt writes about so vividly in his book covering the, the jazz cosmopolitanism in Accra. So, Brett, Good luck going forward, and thanks very much for making the time to talk to me. Thanks again. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Krista Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, Prof. Brett Piper, the leader of the Cosmopolitan Collective Jazz Research Project. This podcast was hosted and produced by myself, with technical production by Elna Schutz. It was funded by the Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa Project in the Witt School of Arts, University of the Witwatersrand, 
Johannesburg, South Africa. The music for this podcast was composed and performed by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license. <laughs>